With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This is KJ Live with Chris Johnson. And Chris is having conversations with influencers in the sports world and entertainment industry. Now here's Chris Johnson. You're now tuned in to KJ Live. Today's guest on the show is former Gonzaga All-American and NBA veteran Dan Dickow. Dan, how you doing, my man? I'm doing well. It's college basketball season. You know, uh, I was doing really well after my Zags. I got to get there early because I know you're going to get there at some point. I want to be the first. The Zags got your Bruins again once more. Um, But you know what? I'm sure you're going to bring up Duke. I'm sure you're going to bring up Alabama recently. The biggest thing, though, is college basketball is here and it's off to a great start, right? Yes, it is. It's an exciting season. I love to see the fans back in the building. The return of the home court advantage is back. College basketball definitely is back, Dan. I wanted to talk, though, about your Zags. We're going to just start off with them. What makes this version of Gonzaga the one that's going to hang a national championship banner? Well, they've got a a crazy amount of depth. Like last year's team had depth, um, but they had experience where literally you just had to plug in Jalen Suggs and get him kind of up to speed with Kispert, Ayayi, Timmy. Uh, a season ago this year's team you got Timmy obviously he's a he's a monster down low uh, and then Nemhart's done a great job as a point guard Watson's been there um, but you got other guys that are either freshmen or now sophomores with not experience coming into this year that just have to find their way find their roles um, you know Chet Holmgren's it's either him or Banchero going to be the number one pick there's a lot of expectations placed on him he's still finding his way in college basketball but it's crazy to think he's averaging like 15 points a game and he shooting 70% from the field right and he's finding his way that that's unheard of um so I think this year's team has a lot more growth than any Gonzaga team that I can remember in recent memory because coach few doesn't usually like he likes experience on his teams and we've never had to deal with a lot of early entries mm-hmm. or we've I think we've only had one one and done um, so guys have kind of gotten to know the, the, the program, the, how things are done, where this year you have to learn on the fly. And if you don't, sorry, you're not going to play as much as you would like. Yeah. T- t- staying with Gonzaga, man, I- I've always been fascinated by just how good that program has been over the course of the last 20, 20 something years. For as long as I can remember, what were some of the ingredients to the recipe of success for Mark Few? Well, I think Coach Few's got an unbelievable eye for talent, um, and it had to start that way in Spokane because Gonzaga wasn't a household name. So he had to find guys when he was an assistant coach under both Dan Fitzgerald and Dan Monson that um, he felt maybe were under the radar of Pac-12 schools, back Pac-10 back then. Um, or if they were maybe good enough to play at that league that he felt that why not recruit these guys? Let's go after them. And, and those would have been guys like Matt Santangelo, yeah. uh, probably a guy like Casey Calvary, who honestly a lot of guys' schools missed on. Mm-hmm. Richie Fromm they missed on because he went and played in the NBA for four years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's had an unbelievable eye for talent. And then he's done a really good job of developing that talent once they get on campus. But there's certain non-negotiables that Coach Few always has 
with his players in regards to the position that they play, but also what role they're going to play on their teams. Like, for for example, a non-negotiable for a point guard for him is care about winning. And some guys and get the job done in winning. Some guys do it through scoring. Like I did it through scoring more than other guys do it through facilitating mm-hmm. uh, or, or being a defensive, you know, lockdown guy. That wasn't me. He would help kind of carve out your niche and your role and then hold you to that standard. Um, and you, if you earn his trust, your leash is as long as they get. But you have to earn that trust, and it's hard to earn that trust. There's been a number of guys that have, myself, Adam Morrison, you know, some Sabonis, a number of other guys have. Um, but there are certain non-negotiables at each position that have to be met. And once you do that, the sky's the limit for the growth in your game as well as the impact that you can have on the team. Sounds like you're describing, like, a buy-in. Like, you know, what what he's trying to get from each and every guy on that roster is him to buy into his role, embrace his role, and flourish his role. Am I correct? Yeah, 100%. I was at a practice earlier this year um, before games even started. And, you know, that's the time of the year where guys are trying to prove themselves in practice to earn a possible starting role or earn rotational minutes. And Julian Strother was doing things that weren't part of his correct skill set to impact the game. He was coming off – he passed up a corner three – came off a pick and roll, tried to throw a pocket pass, and he stopped practice. He was like, hold on a second. We have guys that can come off pick and rolls and make that pass. You need run the floor, get easy buckets, space the floor. If you like it, shoot it. That's what we need from you. I don't think I've seen Julian Strother try to throw a pinpoint pocket pass in traffic since, since that stoppage in practice that I happened to see that day. That's amazing because a lot of times a coach won't stop practice and will kind of like let those type of plays build up. And sometimes you develop bad habits, but the good ones, you know, they nip that in the bud. You started off at the University of Washington and then ended up transferring to Gonzaga. Tell me a little bit about that decision. At the time, it was a little bit controversial uh, transferring from UW to the Zags. (laughs) What, what, What went into that decision? Well, I mean, you would know better than I would because you grew up in, in the heart of L.A. With, with your dad and then the guys that you grew up playing AAU high school with. You knew the Pac-10 was the league, and you knew of UCLA as being them, Arizona, and it was probably Stanford at the time, mm-hmm. the top three in the, in the, in the conference, mm-hmm. which me growing up on the West Coast, I wanted to challenge in myself and play against the best players in college basketball and on the West coast, that was the pac 10. And if you wanted to have a chance to play in the NBA, which I had big aspirations, I felt I had to go to a pac 10 school. Mm-hmm. So I, I was recruited by a number of pac 10s. I was recruited by a lot of WCCs, including uh, one, of, one of the guys that was an assistant coach, I think for you, or he was at UCLA right before you got there, Lorenzo Romar. When he was guy. Mm-hmm. So I looked at Pepperdine. I looked at Portland cause it was home. I had no interest in Gonzaga cause you know, this is the crazy thing. When you're 16, 17 years old, sometimes you make a decision. I don't want to go to that school because it snows. <laughs> yep. So, lo and behold, you're in the gym half the day. You're in class part yep. of the other day. It's yep. like, can you weather a 10-minute a walk in the snow to get to the gym or back to your apartment whatever? You know, and so I felt like I had to go to a Pac-10 school. And Washington, being a hometown school, 
They seemed to be on the rise. It felt like a good spot for me. And it was. I mean, my freshman year, um, we, we made it to the Sweet 16. We actually, your team came to Seattle, and it was, I think, second to last week of the regular season, if I'm not mistaken. You guys were locked. You guys were already in. And you we guys needed to win. We had to beat UCLA to go from off the bubble to into the bubble. We did. And then we get into the NCAA tournament, make the Sweet 16. But, again, I mean, the big part is, like, I wanted to play the highest level college basketball at the time. That was Pac-10. Absolutely. And what did you – how do you think Gonzaga prepared you to play in the NBA? Not only to play in the NBA, but to be a first-round draft pick. Yeah, I think a couple things was, um, you know, when I transferred from Washington, and you kind of touched on it in the, the, the previous question – it was a little controversial in, in the regards that when you transferred at that time in college basketball, it wasn't like now where it's an immediate waiver you go play. You have to sit out a year. So it has to be well thought out. Like, am I willing to sit out a year? And many times if you did transfer, like there was a check mark on your name. Like he's a terrible teammate. He's injury prone. He's not as good as people thought. He's a bust, whatever it might be. So I kind of took that as fuel my redshirt year to not take a day off and just improve, improve and, and work and get myself ready. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, kind of back going back to Coach Fuse non-negotiables, my redshirt year, one of the biggest things that he, he kept saying to me is, look, you got to get tougher. And he wasn't saying it in the, in the, in the terms that um, I, I wasn't physically willing to, you know, set a screen or I wasn't willing to do different things, Mm -hmm. but toughness going from worrying about yourself, maybe, which a lot of times you see at the PAC 10 level, because guys sometimes might think they're on the cusp of making the NBA. They're selfish, but it was a toughness level as far as do the right things for us to be good. And in turn, you're already doing the things that are going to help you be good individually. You blend those two together. You're going to be pretty dang good. We're going to be pretty dang good, but he was always, on me in my redshirt year about learning to compete, 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 get better, prepare for next year. And you're a first team All-American as a senior. Was there a game or moment during that season where you said to yourself, man, I, I can, you know, I can, I can go first round or, you know, I can play in the league or did you have that confidence well before then? Well, I think I think a lot of that started in high school, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I mentioned Baron Davis and your group at UCLA, the the Nike All-American camp before my senior year, um, 1996. Uh, it was I had played regional AAU tournaments up till then, but I got a chance to go to that All-American camp and play against the best players in the country. Um, and, and Baron, to me, was by far the best point guard. But then you start looking around and you start like, okay, I'm, I'm as good or better than this player at this. I fit in differently at this program than this guy would. He's being recruited by that guy, that school. Okay. So I, I'm comparable. So you, you take some of those lessons, you learn them and you start setting those goals and knowing that things are realistic if you keep working at them. Yeah. And so that was a big piece of it. And another reason I went to UW because pros came out of the PAC 10, now the PAC 12, that's the way you looked at it back then. Um, but when I got to Gonzaga, I still had these goals and dreams and aspirations, but you also knew there's check marks. I'm hurt. I was at UW for two years. Um, A lot of people might've thought I lost my starting job. That really wasn't the case because I had injuries. Um, You know, is he going to be good enough to keep Gonzaga at the level it is? And coach Fuse 
you know, he had those non-negotiables, but he also, I don't care what you do as a point guard, score it, not score it. My job is for you to figure out how to get us to win games. And so that was my whole focus. And I knew, I knew he was going to give me the freedom to score it the way that I thought I was capable of, that I didn't have it at UW. But I also knew the most important thing was to win. And so I had to figure out and balance scoring, facilitating for other guys with the victory being the end goal at the end of the day. At the end of my junior year, I did have a couple NBA agents or or evaluators want me to go into the draft. Mm-hmm. And I really haven't shared that with a lot of people because it took me about two minutes to say, no, I'm not doing that. Because we got smacked by Michigan State in the Sweet 16 my junior year. But did you, was, did you at least think about it? Did you at least think about it, Dan? Did you, did you at least look at yourself and say, "Hey, man, maybe I'm ready"? Did you at least evaluate it or give it a give it? A, I didn't. A I didn't. I <clears throat> excuse me. I'll, I I literally gave it about two minutes. Finished the phone <laughs> call, hung up, and my focus was on the next season. Yeah. But we got smacked by Michigan State. Zach Randolph, um, Jason Richardson, Aloysius Anagani. Just a team of dudes that just beat the heck out of us. Yeah. And so I had such a bad taste in my mouth from losing that game that I was like, I just wanted to focus on the next season. And so focused workouts, I was able to represent USA basketball in the World University Games. And at that point, you know, the tryouts and a lot of the practices are in front of NBA, NBA front offices and you start, you know, playing really well and you start thinking, okay, some of these goals and dreams – they're within reach. Um, you you get back to campus after that summer, and the season starts off unbelievably well. And all of a sudden, my parents are getting phone calls from from agents across the country, and Coach Few is, you know, saying, "Hey, this agent's talked to me or whatever." And mm-hmm. and my whole thing was just get me through the season. I, I figured at that point I was going to have a chance, but I thought I did a really good that senior year of just putting everything that wasn't pressing at that moment in time out of out of in front of me and that's unfortunately this day and age for college kids that's impossible impossible social media Mm -hmm. because of the new nil deals Mm -hmm. man i i can't imagine going through what these kids are doing now it's they carry a a bigger load than we did they got they have a lot more in my opinion pressure because of these nil deals and social media and now you got all the eyeballs on you and at any moment you can go viral and the whole country could be talking about you so there's a lot of pressure associated with being a college athlete today what do you think since we're quickly talking about the nil what are your thoughts on the nils and that whole situation i like it i I think it's long overdue um i think there's been plenty of schools that have skirted the guidelines and the the rules for long enough Mm -hmm. Um, and they've gotten creative or creative enough to not get caught. Um, You know, but I think this is long overdue. I think it's going to take a couple of years to sort itself out and really how best it's going to work. You know, unfortunately too many guys think, Hey, these NLI deals opened up. I'm going to make hundred grand this year. Well, that's not the case. I mean, I don't think, I don't, I think, I don't think you could go along or along the rosters of college basketball and find more than a handful of guys that are going to make six figures. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it isn't just open the floodgates for everybody. You still have to produce, which I think is going to kind of play itself out over these next couple of years where the people and the businesses that want to support with an endorsement deal and the players are going to 
they're going to finally start figuring out is like, oh, it's not as good a deal if the kid doesn't play as well right. <laughs> as, yeah. as they should, just like it is in pros. If, if you don't play well, your marketing deals dry up, you know, within that first year as, as a pro. It just is what it is. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, I think what it has done is it's allowed college student athletes to get a little piece of what they deserve. But I think it's also opened up their eyes to think outside the box and bigger than just what is my next game. Now mm-hmm. that's good for some and it's bad for some and it's to be determined for some, you know, for me, when I was in college, I'm sure I would have had a couple opportunities, but they would have been tiny ones. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if I would have necessarily taken advantage of them because I was so focused in on playing um, because at the end of the day, these athletes, what they have to understand is if you don't perform and if your team doesn't win, those things are gone in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. It is performance based. Do you think you, that the media will start to cover college athletes differently now that they're getting paid, if you will? I think it's going to happen a little bit. I think it has to happen to be honest with you, because once you get paid, you're honestly taking that amateur status off um, your resume. Um, I know you've done some college basketball broadcasting. That's what I do a lot of. I've also did a, a few studio shows for NBA games of different things. And I've always looked at it as when you're in the pros, you're getting paid and you're getting paid usually a, a very large sum of money. You criticize them all you want because that's their profession at the college game. I try not to criticize as much as opposed to point out some things that maybe they could work on. So I do it objectively. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think if you start seeing more players make a bunch of money, I think you start blurring those lines and I think you have every right to start criticizing them. Uh, I don't know if I I haven't figured out which path I'll take or direction, Um, but I think you're really starting to blur those lines as how you report or how you comment on those players. Yeah, it's it's you know this whole thing is in the infancy, so you know it's got to definitely play itself out and work some of the kinks out of the situation. First round draft pick by the Hawks in two thousand and two. That's around the time MJ was back with the Wizards, right? Oh yeah. Do you have a did now? Did you go up against MJ? What was the league like during that era uh, of basketball? Yeah, no, my rookie year was MJ's last year, and. you know, it's the only time I've ever stepped on a basketball floor and literally done like a triple take. Like that's Michael Jordan. Like, <laughs> I grew up, come fly with me, all the posters, the shirts, yep. begging for the shoes. When finally I was done growing in my feet, I wasn't getting shoes as often, yeah. you know, the cards, all that. Um, so I remember clearly the first time I checked into the game, you know, I've always respected opponents, but I've never been in awe. Yeah. Well, that was different with Michael Jordan. I mean, yeah. Uh, that was pretty cool. But, you, you know, I think the, the biggest thing with that is once the game flow and the action started happening, that as a player and as a competitor just kind of goes out the window. You're like, am I in the help side? If I am, I got to rotate. Yeah. Transition, I got to stop him. Um, you know, those, those are fun memories for sure. Yeah, you don't want to get embarrassed out there. I know that's no. like <laughs> so definitely in help side position. Um you played in, in, I forgot what year, 2004, 2005, but you averaged 13 a game in 31 minutes. I, I, I'm curious to know about what the situation was. How did you get that opportunity out there? And how did it feel to flourish in the NBA? 
Yeah, you know, I, I battled some injuries and then some not being in the right spots the first part of my career, um, whether it was Atlanta, whether it was being traded back to my hometown Blazers, um, or then quickly getting traded to Golden State, Golden State on to Dallas. And, you know, Dallas, I had to essentially earn my way onto the roster because I was the odd man out going into camp with the amount of roster uh, spots and contracts there were. So I was there, and then they traded me to to New Orleans, which is what you're talking about, my opportunity. And I knew that in all these other areas where I wasn't maybe having the opportunity that I wanted or when the opportunity came, I wasn't making the most of it, um, that the next time a big chance came, I was going to be ready. And so I always prided myself on work ethic, staying ready. I get traded to New Orleans. Uh, your guy, Baron Davis, is hurt with his uh, back injury. He's going to be out a little bit of time. I get there. The general manager said, hey, we're our rosters in flux. We don't know what we're going to do. You might be here for three, four games. You might be waived tomorrow. We don't know. So I'm like, I show up. Wow. I'm like, what the heck? Wow. I just want a chance. Yeah. So literally first game I, I get to New Orleans, I, I get a chance to play. I think I played four minutes, had four points. And then gradually my opportunities started building upon themselves. I think the third game I had double digit points. Quickly thereafter, I got moved into the starting lineup. And as you mentioned, you know, I averaged 13 points a game or so for about uh, a 50-game stretch. And I looked at it as something where opportunity came, I was ready. And I was not going to let it pass me by. I was going to do everything I could to make the most of it. Uh, Unfortunately, um, we weren't very good. Uh, We had tons of injuries, Baron Davis, uh, as well as some of our other main guys. And then they started trading some guys throughout the course of the year when it looked like we were kind of, you know, heading towards the bottom of the lottery. But I didn't mind. I didn't care because I had finally had a chance to play, um, play meaningful minutes and extend my career, which obviously every player that's young wants to do. Absolutely. Um, Heck of a season. And some of the teammates that you played with down there, some pretty solid dudes. One of them, J.R. Smith, is actually in the news. Uh, He had a 4.0 in his first semester. I saw in co- that in college, my man yeah. on the golf team. You got any old J.R. Smith stories from back in those you days? You know, uh, J.R. was a rookie that year. And I just remember the confidence that J.R. had as a young 18-year-old rookie was off the charts. And you saw it throughout the whole course of his career. I mean, he'd pull up from 35 feet on a, on a fast break with no conscience. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and you knew that once he got more acclimated to the NBA game and his skills continued to develop, even though he was he was a good for an 18 year old rookie that he was going to have a good career. Um, but he always, he always played hard. He played with an edge. He played, um, uh, you know, in a way that you knew he was going to have a long career. Mm-hmm. The, the, the funniest J.R. Smith story that I have is, so we had a couple really good, uh, we had some great vets. Um, George Lynch and PJ Brown were a couple vets that we had on that team. And they kind of set the tone for, you know, shoot arounds being early, um, you know, it, if we have a breakfast meeting, show up early, be prepared to, you know, pay attention to film, do all that kind of stuff. And uh, so we're at a breakfast meeting one day and J.R. Smith walks in. He's still on time, but he's kind of skirting that line uh, of being late. And he's wearing SpongeBob square pants, uh, pajama bottoms and slippers. And I'm sitting there eating breakfast with P.J. Brown and P.J. Brown just puts his head over his, over his face. <laughs> And he just starts shaking his head and he goes, he says something along the lines of, 
young fella, you got a lot to learn. <laughs> SpongeBob, man, come on. Yes. But it's awesome to see he went back to college. It sounds like he's doing great. And, yep. uh, you know, he's on the golf team now. So that's one of my passions of mine. Hopefully at some point, you know, he and I can get on the course and play around a golf. Oh, that'd be dope, man. You guys should live stream it too. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dan, what's something about the NBA that people, normal people, like outside of the NBA, have the wrong perception about? You know, I think uh, at times NBA players get a rap for not playing hard. And I have always argued that as hard as I possibly can. And the reason is, is those guys are the best in the world. And it looks like they're not playing hard because they make it look easy. I mean, yep. they just make things look so unbelievably easy. You, you can see a guy go from free throw line to the rim and transition in two dribbles. I mean, <laughs> that is as hard of athletic feet as you're going to find, you know, and then you throw in the, the ability where, you know, if, if a guy's splitting a pick and roll, you're talking about agility, strength, balance, hand dexterity, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the, the spatial awareness of where help side is. I mean, you're doing so so many things so quickly athletically mm-hmm. um, that that it is unbelievably difficult. But guys make it look so easy. And then you look at the top guys. You're talking about your Kobe's, yeah. um, you know, Tracy McGrady's when I was playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the John Morant's and stuff, Damian mm-hmm. Lillard's. It's like they're on a whole nother level than most pros. Yeah. There's 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 levels to being a pro, yeah. and some guys just take it to the extreme. To the freak, to the freak levels, like what I yeah, hundred percent. <laughs> um, do you think coaches in today's NBA, Dan, have an easier job or harder job than coaches in the league when you were playing? Wow, that's a that's a <clears throat> excuse me, that's a difficult one. It's hard to say. I don't watch as much NBA as I used to, uh, simply because I, you know, have to prepare for college games. But <clears throat> I think if you look at the way the game was played then versus now um it's two totally different styles of coaching and preparation the game was slower back then you were talking about throw the ball on the block see if a double team comes Mm -hmm. split action get to the weak side if a double comes play out of it swing swing attack a closeout you know if no double comes you're gonna back do that bump and grind game till the guy gets to a spot you're gonna see that like eight times a game now if you're lucky and that's with guys like Jokic and that's about it. Now it's let's space the floor. Let's, let's pick and roll. Let's dribble handoff. Let's give guys angles to to go. And then you're still swing, swing, attacking closeouts, but it's in a different way. So I I think the, the, the difference now maybe isn't the way it's coached uh, or the coaches are, I think it's the way the game is looked at. Yeah. Now you're looking at the value of a three-pointer as opposed to the value of a post-up. I remember when I was a rookie, um, Lon Kruger got fired early in my rookie career, rookie season, and I was coming back from an, a knee surgery. Mm-hmm. The new head coach, Terry Stotts, takes over. His view of a backup point guard was pick up 94 feet, oh, yeah. um, don't turn it over, um, and only shoot open shots. Well, right there, those are three strikes against me because I stuck defensively to pick up 94 feet. I would turn it over occasionally because I was willing to make a, a pocket pass, thread the needle, or, or, or a tough pass. And then if if I'm only allowed to take open shots, that's hard because I was ingrained as a scorer in college. Um, I remember times I was told 
not to shoot a three-pointer because it was a bad shot at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, like, hey, let's get 35 threes up, and, and, and we're still not happy because we wanted 40. Mm-hmm. So it's just a difference in how the game is viewed. Uh, I think coaches still put the same amount of time and effort into coaching what they believe in at the time, though. Yeah, for sure. When you think about the evolution of the game from then until now, obviously a lot more emphasis on the three-point shot, spacing, uh, less about centers down low and banging, more about being fleet of foot, kind of slender, you know, long three and D type guys. Um, when you think about the the evolution of the game, how do you rank or how do you evaluate your game? as far as being able to play today? How would I evaluate my game? Yes, your game. So yeah. we'll t- take Dan Dickow's game yeah. back in 2000 and put him in today. You know, I, I think I would fit very well simply because I could shoot it, I could handle it, and I could pass it. Defensively, that was always going to be a question for me, regardless. I, I'm going to give you a, a, a tremendous effort. Um, but the game, the floor was shrunk at that point in time, so it was a little bit easier Um to guard guys. Plus you could physically hand check a little bit. Now I wasn't a brute physically where I was going to push you, but at least when you, when you have the ability to arm bar or kind of hand check, you can keep an eye on a guy. You can mm-hmm. keep track of a guy. So at least, you know, you might be looking in one direction to see some action, but your hands on the guy so you could feel him go. So yeah. it gives you a head start. Well, now if you put a hand on a guy, that's a foul. Yeah. Um, and so I think space and quickness, it really helps offensive players these days. Yeah. Um, I don't like to be one of those guys that say I would have been better now versus then because it still at the end of the day, the best talented players are going to make that league and the most talented players are going to play minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do think the style would fit me better, but it's hard to say if I would have been better. Where, where do you pinpoint that moment where – or that year that the NBA style of basketball changed? Do you have a recollection of when it went to this, you know, pace and space or uh, specifically speaking about Steph Curry? Yeah. Do you think that he singularly was responsible for that change in the way that we play basketball on all levels? I think, I think the start of it was Mike D'Antoni's eight seconds or less, but then Steph took it to the next level, but Steph, I don't think, you know, Mark Jackson deserves some credit for being willing to let him shoot deep threes in transition. Um, You know, Steve Kerr took it to the next level and basically built an offensive philosophy around his ability to pull up in transition, come off pick and rolls, as well as his ability to move without the basketball, which I don't think gets enough credit, the shape and condition he's in to be able to do that. Absolutely. But I think if you look at you know, D'Antoni Sons with Steve Nash started it. And then Steph Curry's and those groups took it off. But my, an interesting story I have is the last NBA training camp that I was a part of was Phoenix Suns. Mm-hmm. And this would have been uh, with Nash, Amari Stoudemire, Grant Hill. Um, and unfortunately, I got cut basically the last day of training camp because Robert Sarver didn't want to hold any more contracts. Um, to this day, it's a frustration because I knew I was good enough to be on that team. I had a good enough training camp, but the one of the last games, if not the last preseason game I played that year was against the Warriors, Steph Curry's rookie year. Hmm. And I had to guard him on a few minute, few minutes towards the end of the game. And, and, and I just remember I, I had watched him 
just light up my Gonzaga Bulldogs in the NCAA tournament and for thinking 40. about probably 40. Yeah, 40. <laughs> I guess a good defender and Stephen Gray. I remember like he's good, but okay, come on. I, I know it's it's college versus the pros. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't thinking I was going to stop him by any way, but I was guarding him just like at the end of that few minute stretch where I guard had to guard him. I was like, he's different. I couldn't put my finger on it. You know, it's just the way he moved with the ball, yeah. the way he moved handling the ball, the, the, the pureness and the rhythm that he shot it with. And you've been around enough shooters to know there's good shooters and then pure. there's pure shooters. <laughs> yep. And, and a lot of times the pureness is because of how rhythmic their shot and how effortless it looks. Mm-hmm. He had all those intangibles. It just took a couple of years of, of getting through some injuries for him uh, and kind of growing into his game at that next level before he took off. But, I mean, he's as fun as anybody there ever has been to watch the play. Do you consider him a PG, Dan? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, well, you know, you probably follow Rashad Phillips a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got a great breakdown of, of you know, some different characteristics and how he slots players. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't go as in-depth as he does, but I, I like to call them ball handler decision makers. You know, I don't think there's a lot of true point guards anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, Chris Paul is a point guard. I mean yeah. – Bottom line, he's a point guard. Uh, I think John Morant's kind of a ball handler, decision maker. Same with Damian Lillard. Um, uh-huh. You know, guys that can make point guard plays, but they're also such a good scorer, mm-hmm. you don't want to take the emphasis of them searching for their own shot out of their comfort level. Yeah. So uh, that's the way I kind of try to look at it. Ball handler, decision makers, wings are like slasher attackers. And then bigs, I mean – I'm always I've always been guard oriented in how I look at the game. So post up bigs or pop out, step out bigs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. I I guess I, I was I had Bob Myers, uh, Golden State's GM on uh, a, f- a few weeks ago. We we're, we're t- had the conversation of what position does Steph Curry play? And Bob's like, he's not a point guard. He's just a basketball player. Yeah. You know, he's, just, he's yeah. a basketball player. And that's how they like to define things uh, up at Golden State. My man, I, w- I wanted to know. Once you decided, right, to shut it down, call it a day, how did you transition back into the real world? Yeah, that's a a hard one for any former athlete. I mean, you grow up and that's all you're focused in on. That's all you're doing. And unless you're truly at the the peak, you don't get to say I'm done. It's like the contracts kind of, you know, for Just lack of a better term, they dry up. They're, they're yeah. not there anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I got waived by uh, Phoenix, like I had mentioned. And then I st- stuck around the house and worked out, stayed in shape. And I said, if there's no phone calls from an NBA team or a great European opportunity, I was going to go to the D League. So I went to the D League for a short stretch that year before I got hurt. I think I played eight or 10 games, played really well. No call up happened, which. Uh, it is what it is. You know how the drill goes. Sometimes mm-hmm. it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I got hurt, and in the D League, once you get hurt, chopping block, you're done. You're out of there. Yeah. Um, and it was an injury, plantar fasciitis, that it took me eight nine months to get rid of. And by that time, we were kind of blended into like the next season. There's no opportunities. Uh, then the lockout happens, uh, and then the Blazers I, they had me on the uh, the coaching staff for a year of player development. Um, and then I wasn't kept when they had the the new regime come in with Terry Stotts and Neil Olshay. Um, but at that point, it was a, an opportunity where my family moved to Spokane and I got into business and I really started going into the broadcasting world, which 
for a former player is as good as it gets. I mean, yeah, you got to do your homework, you got to prepare, but you're around the game, but you're not around the game where you're watching eight hours of film like a coach and having to like put together scouting reports. You just got to know the game as a broadcaster. You got you got to know storylines and be able to tell them a little bit more. Yeah, no, it's a dream to uh, call college basketball, high school basketball, sit courtside. Uh, you know what I mean? Dan? Yeah. It's like <laughs> it's off the hook for a real hooper. Um, I guess, man, I wanted to touch on what you're doing now, where we can watch you, where we can listen to your podcast and, you know, everything that's Dan Dickow. Where can we find it? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So I've been working with a sports media technology company in Spokane for about six years um, we've got a number of partnerships with state associations across the country, um, but I'm more focused on their media side where um, I've been doing a podcast for uh, about a year and a half called the ISO. You were a guest on it a couple months back um, where I try to get players, coaches, former players, um, just to share their experiences. Very similar to what you're doing now uh, with myself. So that's been fun. Uh, but then college basketball analyst work. I work Pac-12 Networks, CBS Sports, Westwood One Radio. Um, so that keeps me close to the game. And then most recently, I just opened a Shoot360 facility in Spokane. Oh, wow. um, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of those down in the L.A. area. Absolutely. Um, it's the new wave of, of technology-based basketball training. So I was lucky enough to have an opportunity. We've been open for three weeks, and uh, it's going really well. I love it because, you know, once a hooper, always a hooper. You want to find a way to get into a gym. This is kind of uh, an extra – incentive an extra way to get into the gym and, and be around what i love yeah they have one down here in the torrance area i've yeah. actually been to one i was always wondering about do you guys have the full court also and then like a bunch of other smaller courts like set up yeah so the torrance one that you're talking about has an nba regulation full court and i think 10 skill stations shooting stations ours in spokane uh we've got five shooting stations five skill stations and then we do have a full court, but it's not NBA length. It's uh, I think it's 76 feet by 50. So, you know, all the way up to, to high school age kids, it's perfect. Um, you know, we do a number. You sign up as a member, you get unlimited access to the, to the technology. Uh, but then we, we're going to run a number of, you know, skill workouts and, and, and clinics throughout the you know upcoming years here in Spokane and really try to put Spokane on a map basketball wise. It's never going to be L.A. It's never going to be Portland or Seattle. Um, but you know, we do get some good players occasionally out of here. One of uh, two of them that you might know, John Stockton and Adam Morrison. Yeah. I heard of those guys. They were pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) They were pretty good. Hey, Dan, well, thank you so much for joining us on KJ live today, man. We're going to be checking you out and all of your endeavors and, uh, everybody that's in the Spokane area hit up shoot 360 when you get the chance, ladies and gentlemen, Dan Dickow.